Steve and Kevin review the NYSE Open 5 results on episode 67 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 67 of So Many Insane Plays, our coverage of the New York Stack Exchange Open number 5 results. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We do have a few announcements for this episode. Locally here in Michigan, we have an Eternal Weekend trial coming up. That is a sanctioned vintage. Yeah, I know. In just a few weeks, that is July 15 at RIW in Livonia, Michigan. And just to reiterate, that's a trial for Eternal Weekend and means it's sanctioned. So no proxies for this one, which is different than the usual at RIW and other places in the area. Our last trial in Battle Creek at BC Comics was a rousing success, and this one probably will be as well. I'm predicting between 12 and 15 players, probably. It's funny, the sanctioned environment actually brings some different people out of the woodwork, and the metagame is a little bit different Hmm. because of it. So (laughs) it's an interesting effect, which is something we've alluded to on, on several episodes in the past, and something we'll probably be talking about for a long time to come. Other important news that we have that I think is relevant to most of our audience is updates to the Eternal Weekend information. Two things. We got images and news of all the playmats that are prizes, not uh, not prizes, giveaways for the weekend, and they're awesome. Legacy has giant lotus petal art, which is really zoomed in on the lotus petal, and Vintage has the Soul Ring, which is also pretty zoomed in and huge and looks awesome. And then the VIP bat is Bazaar of Baghdad. Which By Jeff was, Mengus. Yes, which was... All, all of them, I think, have been retouched or updated a little bit to make them clearer in the the large form factor, and they all look awesome. Yes. So that's that's pretty exciting news. Another excellent trio of mats for this year. Beautiful mats, yeah. Other important news is we finally have confirmation of the structure of the weekend. That is the timing of the various events. <clears throat> so Thursday, there will be trials, legacy and vintage trials for buys in the main events. Just like last year, Friday will be the Vintage main event, Saturday will be the Legacy main event, and Sunday will be both top eights, first Vintage, then Legacy. So it's a it's a straight repeat of last year's schedule. And similarly, not directly related, but related, uh, Eternal Central will be hosting an old school event on Thursday, time and date and location to be uh, finalized still, but that will be Thursday, that's what Jayco's planning. And we'll talk about that on the show, too, as well. Yeah. Not entirely sure if I'll play you... that one this year, but uh, Steve, are you going to play old school on Thursday? <laughs> I'm almost certainly. Okay. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm climbing up. Uh, the last two years, I've gotten third and second place in that event, so I expect <laughs> a, I expect one slot improvement this year. Nice. Well, I, I will accept no less from you. <laughs> uh, what do you think about the spacing of the? What do you? What do you? What's your opinion of holding the top eight two days after the vintage event? I mean, obviously there are advantages to the players, 
but the logistic it makes the logistics more challenging especially for an out-of-the-way city yeah well you're not wrong and we've talked about this a bit in the past i'm generally in favor of it but i'm also acknowledging that i'm the sort of person who can afford to take a long weekend and i know that it's an inconvenience for a lot of people it's tough to plan if you're the sort of person who is expecting to make top eight or you know feels like there's a reasonable chance that you just have to plan for such a long weekend so I personally like it, but I can understand how others would be put off by it. Yeah, it's gonna. Be, I think it's a challenge, especially because, yeah, as you said, it becomes an extremely long weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like one of those things. Do you book the the flight <laughs> just through? You know, if you don't play Legacy, like I no longer do, do you book the flight, the return flight on a Saturday, and then just make a last minute change if you make top eight, or do you? You know what I mean? Or absolutely, you... absolutely, I do. I'm fortunate enough that the location is still driving distance for me, so I'll be in a carload of people, and I'll be in a carload of people, I think, I don't know exactly who or how much, but it'll probably be a carload of vintage players, and we will, I think, undoubtedly be planning to stay through Sunday afternoon, and since it's drivable distance, it's a long drive, but since it's drivable, that's okay with us, but for those of you flying in, yeah, I think... I don't know, it kind of depends on your outlook on life, right? It's a glass half full, half empty sort of thing. But I think you're probably right that you plan for leaving if you're just a vintage player on Saturday afternoon and then welcome the hassle of rescheduling if you make top eight, (laughs) right? Yep. Steve, any other announcements from your perspective? Nope. All right. In that case, let's move into a a special interview that we have with the the runner-up from the NYSE Open 5. We'll, uh, We'll take a pause and then we'll get him on the line. And we're back. We've got a special guest on the line. <laughs> Runner-up competitor, NYSE Open 5. Let me introduce one, Stephen Menendi. And Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hadn't heard, Steve got all the way up to second place and was defeated, unfortunately, by one Ryan Glacken in the finals at NYSE Open 5. So we're going to take a tournament report approach here with Steve to talk through beginning to end, you know, deck selection, how the event played out, his Swiss opponents, his top eight opponents, that kind of thing, as well as a little bit of a, a taste of the metagame. If you didn't get to watch the coverage, the live stream of NYLC Open 5, it was a very successful event. Steve, do you remember the total player count? Um, I can't I recall it, offhand. It, yeah, it was between 130 and 140 was the final. Yeah, my recollection was 132 or something like that, 135. I think, anyway, I think it was right, a, a pretty successful right turnout. Yeah, I mean it's it's it was lar- it's larger than the European Vintage Championship last year. So I think it makes it the third yeah. or second or third largest vintage event of the year. So I think uh, Nick Detweiler, the the tournament organizer, said on stream that he would be the third largest this year. But I think he was anticipating champs when he said that. I, I yes. think that's what he yes. meant. Yes, yeah. I agree. So anyway, very it's successful what, turnout. You know, one the, of the, the largest. NYSC- yeah. Yeah, it continues to be a very well-run, successful, and well-attended event. And uh, our hats off to to Nick for organizing it and continuing to do so. Yeah, it's a, it's and a labor of love. Steve, but what it's was also your impression? A, well, let me just say, yeah, it's it a labor of love is. for him, and he, you know, he's he's been organizing this for five years now. But it's it's it, you know, it's a hard it, part of what makes it so exceptional is that for people who care about these things, the EV in this event is absurd because first place is a black mm-hmm. lotus. The- prizes Second are great is, and yeah the, the power power nine is given to the top eight and this isn't power nine in like 2004 
This is Power9 in 2017, where Power9 is exceptionally valuable. So it's, and then not only that, but he has a, yeah. he gave away workshops to ninth through 12th place. The irony is that a workshop is probably more valuable than a Mox Emerald. So if you win, if you get eighth place, you you actually get less value than ninth than twelfth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 worth noting. Yeah, it's worth noting how committed to the prize support Nick has been, despite the fact that the cost of that exactly. has increased significantly since he started the event. Now it's defrayed a little bit by the fact that the entry fee for the event is one hundred and twenty-five dollars. But it's worth every penny for the experience. So part of what makes the event so unique is that the people who are there have great faith in their ability to do well because, well, you're paying over $100 to get in, right? So the right. it's a pretty amazing uh, experience, pretty unique in the vintage yeah. experience. The competition is good. The metagame is, is strong and filled with people who are very knowledgeable and committed to the format and have been for years for the most part. Right. So right. it's, it's just a ton of, of stalwarts, many of them from the East Coast, and that's a strong, thriving vintage community up there. It is. It's amazing. So, so Steve, we want to talk about your impressions of the event, but let's start from the beginning, where you began, and that is, what were your feelings about the event, the metagame, and your deck selection going in? What caused you to walk in the door with the deck that you chose? Well, the the place I would start is actually not Paper Magic, but Magic Online. You know, the the mm-hmm. many of the competitors in the room, like a Rich Shea or Brian Kelly, are regularly playing in daily events and the Vintage Challenges in, in Magic Online. We've talked about the Vintage Challenges, but we've now gone from once a month Power 9 Challenge to the weekly Vintage Challenge. And the Vintage Challenges now start... Um, Actually, they've started uh, May 22nd, so we now have um, they we've we've essentially had six challenges since the restriction of Gush, and I've been very very carefully following the results, the metagame results. We'll, we'll talk about those in a bit, you know, later on and in more detail in a future episode. But if you track the results from the vintage challenges, I think the the vintage metagame is fairly clear. That is to say, it's not necessarily stable, although I think it is fairly stable. But the oscillations within the vintage metagame and the line patterns are pretty clear as to why, what's happening and why. And basically, I mean, my initial, in our pre-restriction and we recorded an, an episode the day of the restriction, we predicted exactly what would happen. And I think we were dead on. One of the mm-hmm. things that we said, Kevin, was one of the things that we said was that even restricted, the DAC Delve engine with one gush would be one of the strongest, if not the strongest, draw engines in the format. We also said that the the draw engine that would be competing with it would be the paradoxical outcome draw engine. So the two premier blue draw engines in the format are on the one hand the paradoxical engine, which you and I both played at Vintage Champs, but we thought it would be it would be a kind of a quick strike approach because we thought that the format would be low in null rods and we were right. Um, and and then. You know this now this this restricted DAC draw engine DAC delve draw engine, which is composed of DAC, Jace, Friends, Prodigy, um, the two delve draw spells, Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time, and one Gush, and then more surrounding pieces like Preordain, um, the restricted Gitaxian Probe, Merchant Scroll, and Mystical Tutor, and that's exactly proven true. the The main competitor to the Jeskai Mentor deck, which uses the DAC delve draw engine, is Workshops Thorn decks. Um, and you know, to a lesser extent, White Eldrazi. But the the workshop decks you and I both predicted would be just as good after this restriction. In fact, we basically parsed the April 24th 
ban and restricted list announcement, and we said nothing that was said there would come true, right? They said that that they hoped that um, the mentor deck would diminish um, by removing the draw spells. Quote: We will significantly weaken monastery monastery mentor based strategies. And then they said, hopefully, the move away from free spells in the mentor decks will lessen the impact of the workshop decks, various sphere effects, opening up the metagame. In other words, they think that thought that workshops would diminish. And we said there's only three things that can happen to to mentor post restriction of gush and probe. It can either reduce its presence in the metagame, stay roughly the same, or increase. And I said that I thought the probability of it staying the same or increasing was greater than the probability of it decreasing. And that prediction is actually proven true if you look at the vintage challenge results in aggregate, the line graph of it. But the, the key <laughs> thing for me was the day after the restriction, I played a Jeskai Mentor deck and 4-0'd the daily. <laughs> Essentially, what I've been playing for the last three mo- two, two months, right? Uh, I guess um, closer to uh, three months now because it's been May, June, I guess, yeah, two months. Um, and I played in the, the end of that week, I played in the April Power 9 Challenge and made top eight with the same deck list maybe one or two cards different. Um, and then I played in, in two challenges since then. And the most recent challenge was was the weekend before last, which was um, June 17th, where I got second place and lost to Jazza. In the April Power 9 challenge, which was the final Power 9 challenge before the format rolled over into the Vintage challenge, I lost in the top eight to Jazza. <laughs> so I I sat down and I said, how do I, <laughs> how do I, beat, how do I beat Jazza? And um, it just so happens on 6.17, I, I rebuilt my deck to have a much stronger workshop matchup, but I still lost to Jazza in the finals. So going into the NYSE, <laughs> I, I really broke down that top eight, that t- that finals match. And Kevin, I've shared my experience with it with you. I'll share a little bit today because I've, you know, I've, I've somewhat struggled with how to present all this information, how to share it, because... The truth of the matter is we have so many venues to share vintage information. You can write articles, you can stream, or you can podcast. And it's not still not clear to me what the best medium is to present any of this information, but I, I thought about streaming some of my events. It's just weird to stream an event that's already occurred because you, <laughs> the suspense is out of it, but it's very useful pedagogically. Anyway, I, I might go back and restream my 617 tournament because I got, I, again, I got second place. But he, there were 47 players, and I lost to Jazz in the finals. And here's what happened. I think it's probably worth recounting this a bit. So my opening hand in Game 1 of the finals was Mox Ruby, Scalding Tarn, Mental Misstep, Misty Rainforest, Pyroblast, Flooded Strand, and Cataxium Probe. This is not a great hand, especially against workshops, but I kept it because I had plenty of mana and I was on the draw. Um, it's worth noting, I think, that um, the, the Vintage Challenges still do not use the Top 8 Player Draw rule, Kevin. So it's random. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't know why MTGO can't can't program that um wow but any yeah i know um which is it's awful but um he had a terrible opening he just went factory go i drew yeah. i drew preordain and i played probe and i saw revoker thorn academy ballista ballista wasteland which is really really good i drew uh, actually it's, it's not very good because he doesn't have any mana right he has factory and academy and he has no no I guess he has to play like Wasteland and Thorn and then Academy the turn after. I drew Dak Faden off the probe and I played Strand Island. I preordained into Black Lotus. So I was able to play, um, I put the plow on top and drew the Lotus and played Lotus Ruby Dak and plus one Dak, drawing Strip Mine and Plow. I discarded Misstep and Pyroblast, which are really bad in that matchup. Now, from that position, it seems like it's almost impossible for me to lose. I've got Ruby, <laughs> Island, Dak in play. I know his hand, right? I've got Plow. 
Um, and the best thing he can do is probably like Thorn Revoker, maybe on Dak. Um, and I've got a Misty Rainforest and Plow. Well, he drew, I think, probably one of the best cards he could possibly drew. He drew Str- Soul Ring. So mm-hmm. he played, he played um, Soul Ring, Thorn. It's too bad I discarded my misstep. Thorn, Academy, and Revoker. So he exploded yeah. onto the board in turn two. I drew another misstep for my turn. And I had to decide. <laughs> I had to decide whether to plow the revoker or strip the fact. Um, this became a very challenging. I mean, I don't know what you would do, Kevin, because well, the, either either way, you're giving up Dak in that scenario, right? Right. If I mean, well, if I plow the revoker, I w- it will allow him to attack attack the um, Dak with the factory. But Not but Dak it. was starting your turn on four loyalty, right? Um. Yeah. Well, it, because it you had, had plus Dak yes, on your first yes, turn. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So you could plus Dak. And keep him out of range from dying to the factory, right? Yeah. So there's a couple of options. I can plow the revoker. But you know he has. But you know he has ballista. Yes, exactly. So exactly. So I can plow the revoker and then take soul ring. If I do that, then he can attack the fact. He can attack the factory into Dak and kill it. Or he can play ballista mm-hmm. and kill Dak. Right? You're right because if I, you're exactly right. If I strip the factory, then he plays academy, taps soul ring, taps factory, taps academy, and plays ballista. And then mm-hmm. he'll be able to. Uh, um, well, if the DAC goes to. The, yeah, the DAC will be stuck at you, three. The DAC will be stuck at three if the Revoker stays in play. Right. And so either one of those plays. I mean, either way, the result is DAC is dead. Well, let me think about that. So I could plow. If I plow the Revoker and plus DAC to four and don't take the. To score, five. Well, I. I pl- it I'm would sorry, be five. Five, right. Yeah. Then mm-hmm. he can play. He can, he can play Revoker. Sorry, not Revoker. He can play Ballista, Ballista at two. Well, how would he do it? He would tap the Soul Ring. He would tap the Academy. The Academy would tap for... What he would actually do <laughs> is tap Soul Ring. He would tap Soul Ring to animate Factory. He would then tap the Academy, which would generate three mana because there's a Thorn, a Soul Ring, and a Factory in play. And then that would be... Um, four left. Four left to play Ballista at two. Then he mm-hmm. would attack Dak from five to three. So he couldn't quite kill... Dak right there, but it would prevent me from being able to. He could just ping it to one, Dak to one. And I wouldn't be able to steal anything and want it. Right. Right. So it wouldn't kill Dak. Well, yeah. Um. Or alternately, he could let you activate Dak because the only thing you could steal at that point would be Soul Ring, and if yeah, you did but, so, it would put Dak at one. He'd be able to keep the Revoker, so he could trade his Soul Ring, not Revoker, Ballistic. He could trade his soul ring for a live ballista at one if he wanted to. Yeah. I mean, if if I don't take the soul ring, he can play ballista for two. If I do take the soul ring, then he's going to be able to attack the Dak and kill it. Yeah. So he played... I ended up... I think this is a bad move in retrospect. I took the soul ring because I was committed in my head to removing his mana, right? Because his opening hand was so mana light. I felt like taking the soul ring was the linchpin to his mana situation. So, let, But mm. let me just take it. So I... I plowed the revoker, took the soul ring. He uh, played a wasteland, animated the factory, tapped the academy, played Ravager, and they attacked the the factory into my deck and killed it. I drew Mentor, which I played. I also stripped his academy since he had the two ballistas in hand. He played a ballista at one. He sacrificed the thorn, then sac to the then sacked the Ravager to the ballista and killed my Mentor. Mm-hmm. I drew yeah. I drew Jaceburn's Prodigy, which I played, and a Tarn. Then he played Workshop, cast Ballista for two, and killed my Jace Friends Prodigy, and I was completely locked out of the game. Completely. So it was like, almost, I don't know how I win that game. I, like, analyzed it very carefully, but I think in retrospect, my best line of play is to plow the Revoker plus one Dak, getting it to five, 
allowing him to play a ballista at two, it would still... In essence, what I've decided is the best thing for the DAC to do is to continue to plus one. And then maybe eventually I'll be able to continue to filter because what's important is that I need to get rid of bad cards in game one, like Mental Misstep and Pyroblast and Crud like that. But I was extremely frustrating (laughs) game, right? Because I felt like I should have won that game. And then game two was actually worse. I'll quickly recount it. My opening hand was Brainstorm, Dak, Ruby, Plow, Mentor, Tundra, Volk. Um, he actually opened... I played Volcanic Island and Ruby on turn one. And I played the Volcanic Island because if he has a Wasteland, I don't. I want to be able to have a white. He played turn mm-hmm. one, Mishra's Workshop, Trinisphere. I played Brainstorm mm-hmm. in response into Chewer, Jace Fringe Prodigy, and Preordain. I put back two of them. I played Tundra and then Dak, which is insane. I mean, right here with, Tund- with Trinisphere in play, I can play Mentor. A, I can play Mentor. B, I can play Chewer. Three, I, uh, I can uh, C, I could play Jace Fringe Prodigy, or I could play Dak. So I have insane yeah. options under Trinisphere. I don't know what the best play is. What would you play under Trinisphere? I feel like Dak is the only thing that he can't immediately remove, right? Exactly. Because if you play Mentor, then he just has to go land Ballista, which is bad. If you play Dak, then even if he has the Ballista or the Revoker, you've at least gotten value out of it, and he can't straight up remove it either. Right, right. Exactly. So I played Dak, and it also allows me to hit land drops under Trinisphere, right? Yeah, that's another key, because your Brainstorm revealed no extra mana. Exactly, exactly. So I played the Dak, but then I had to decide what to discard, (laughs) um, (laughs) because I... I um my options were to discard preordain, dig, mentor, swords of plowsters, Jason Prodigy, and Chewer. I think I incorrectly wow. discarded preordain and dig. I don't know what to discard with Dak. I probably should discard preordain and Jace. And, and Jace, yeah. Keeping dig. I think you want to keep mentor, dig, and Chewer. Exactly. I think that's yeah. what I should have done. He played Caracas, which me especially makes Jace discarding Jace important. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. He played Caracas and he played Revoker because he remembers Trinisphere in play. He had to spend three right. mana to play Revoker. He revoked Dak. And by the way, this illustrates something. Revoker against my version of, of, of Mentor is probably like the, the most annoying card to play against. I'd rather see anything <laughs> out of my opponent. Than, I'd rather see Tanglewire. I'd rather see, you know, Revoker is the card right. that really um, jimmies up my deck. Um, anyway, so he played Revoker. I drew a Volk. I played it. I chewered the Trinisphere and then plowed the Revoker, which I think is the mm. correct sequence because I now have four mana, Interesting. right? I have four mana. I don't know what the alternative line is there. I guess I could just play a mentor and pass, but this allows me to do this allows me to plus one Dak again, right? Get it back up there. Well, the alternate line is to just leave the Trinisphere in play, right? Right, but then I can so, only play one spell. So what do I play? If I leave Well the, but he he has no accelerance. He has no artifacts and, in play for me to steal. Right. right. Well, I know. And he also has no other workshop because you would have played it and played two spells in the next turn. So what would you So do? Trinisphere is well that's it, I'm I'm not sure what the right answer is. I'm just pointing out that the Trinisphere is hurting him also. Yes, that's true. Right? Unless he has exactly Ancient Tomb or pulls another workshop off the top, he's only going to play one spell in the next turn. And so then you have to evaluate what could that one spell be if I chewer or plow the Revoker, one or the other, and put my deck up to, what does it go to? It goes to five, right? Yeah. What spell What spell for four or five mana could really so punish me? So you're saying maybe I should have just plowed the Revoker and then plus one Dak, and that's it? That's a possibility. You have to analyze yeah. what his follow-up threat could be, though. What's the worst thing he could play there? It's possibly... I don't think it's Ballista. It's possibly Foundry Inspector. No, because Inspector doesn't allow him to skirt Trinisphere. 
I guess the worst thing for you there would might be something like Precursor Golem or Tangle yeah, Wire. But Tangle Wire is actually not that bad. That would hurt him more. Yeah, I, plow, I need Plow for Precursor Golem because Chewer isn't going to deal yeah, with it. Yeah, right. So there's a, you could make a case for just Chew the Revoker plus your deck to five and pass the turn and have Plow on tap. That's interesting. So, but you're probably still going to fall behind because he has a ton of, of cards in hand still. Yeah, I'm playing the rest of the game under Trinisphere. I feel like that's not a good thing. In, it, it eventually will become asymmetric in his favor. Well... That's that's probably true. That's the reason that card is restricted, yeah. and you're probably right. So I think you I think what you did was a, a relatively safe play. Yeah. But th but there is definitely a cost to it on the very next turn. Right. So I chewed. I'm, I'm guessing lower, you played multiple lower, spells. Yes. So I chewed the Trinisphere, plowed the Revoker, and I plus one Dak. I drew Lotus and Dak. So it's easy to. Oh, wow. Yeah. So but I mean at this point because he has Caracas, I discarded the Jace and I discarded Dak. So now my hand sure. is just Lotus Men. Um, Lotus Mentor, but really what it should be yeah. is Mentor and Dig here, had I played this correctly. It should be Mentor and Dig. And yeah. So I just played... I, or I, even Lotus Dig at that point. Right. After you've taken the Trinisphere, don't you just go Lotus Dig at that point? Yeah, I mean, how insane would that be? That would be even better. Yeah. I would probably just be able to pull ahead. So I played Lotus well, Mentor. Well, you'd probably find a Force of Will. Yeah, I played Lotus Mentor, and now I have no hand. And here's what he did. Mm-hmm. He plays, on his turn three, another Revoker and Thorn of Amethyst. Okay. So now I have him play Mentor in Dak and no yep. hand and plenty of mana, like four or five mana. And he right. has in play um, Workshop, Caracas, Revoker, Thorn. And I'm basically yeah. dead. Well, I'm basically dead. I, <laughs> I, mean, it's I hate to say it. I hate to say it, but both of the games you've just described are the, the, the narrative for me is how bad Dak is right now, right? Dak is good for one loot. Dak is like Thirst for Knowledge in Vintage. Occasionally, you're going to get some other upside, but their whole deck is now designed to beat Dak, and it's been that way for a while. Well, I think... Between Ballista, Ravager, Revoker, and Precursor Golem, their whole creature I... base, aside from occasional Foundry Inspectors, is immune to Dak, and what's worse, good at killing him. I think, you I think you're right that Dak is no longer as powerful as it was, but I think if you, if you change the scenario even a little bit, if he had a single Mox... That Dak would have been amazing, yeah. right? If he had gone workshop... How, how so? Well, because if he goes turn one... Okay, he goes turn one shop Trinisphere, and I play turn two Dak, and then he plays Revoker, and I chewer the Trinisphere and plow the Revoker, and I can steal a, a Mox from him, then I think it's... There's even a chance I don't even chewer the Trinisphere, right? I just plow the Revoker, steal a Mox. I'm in really... I think Dak, if, if he had a Mox, the Dak yeah. would have been amazing. Given the cards that he subsequently played, though, on turn three, doesn't that game just play out the same way? Doesn't he just still play Revoker and Thorn yes, and you I just have got, one more mana? But I would have gotten a lot more value out of it, and I would have been able to... You would have one fewer card. You wouldn't have been able to play your Mentor. It would You'd, you'd have Mentor in hand, and he would have the same I board, and you'd have one more mana. I, st I still would have probably chewered the Trinisphere and plowed the Revoker, but I, but I would have denied... Right, but then he the question is... He would have had one fewer card in his hand, and I would have taken it, so it would have been more card advantage for me. Um, it's not more card advantage for you. You're losing the plus one from the plusing of deck. It's, yeah, it's card just, advantage neutral for you. That's card advantage. The plus one doesn't actually generate card advantage for me. <laughs> so it, it did, though, in that game, because you discarded non-mana sources, right? If you don't get yeah. the, the pluses with deck that game, you end up not finding mana and not playing your spells, I think. Well, I, I mean... Because you I, I, played four mana worth of spells. I actually have found Dak to be very good against workshops, and I think that this this game, like the game one, Dak allowed me to really fix my hand very well. 
Yeah. Get rid of well, the... that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Dak is Dak is like thirst for knowledge. You you should count on Dak to have one activation and then either die or be turned off. Well, the point is because that's, if it, their whole deck the, is structured to do that. He had a double revoker draw in game two, and the point is whether it was JVP. It doesn't or Dak. matter. It doesn't matter. You take any two creatures out of that creature base, and they all kill Dak. That's the whole point. That's point, that's why those creature bases my, exist. It's because is, of Dak. My point though is that these revokers are really damaging mm-hmm. to the way my deck is designed because it's designed well, around Dak and JVP. And so the, yeah, that's the card that it concerns me the most is Revoker. And my deck wow. is my deck is really designed. I mean, actually, I mean, Dak won me a ton of games in the you know in this this tournament and the NYSE. I I think mm. I just I agree with your point that it's not as good, but I don't think it's as bad as you're saying. That's all. So well, he, he uh, so you you've lost two games where you played Dak on on turn one, one or, two. or turn two. Yeah. yeah. But I think I think and you lost these, the first one because I did, both of these games in the first one I think it's clear that I made a mistake I allowed my Dak to be killed by taking his soul ring well, I but, shouldn't have done that I shouldn't have done that I should have moved Dak to five if I part of the point is Dak was going to die anyway because of the not, the creatures right because he had multiple ballistas and ravager and your Dak was going to die you couldn't keep Dak from dying in that game you just just had to prolong well, one more turn well in the in the first game Eve if he yeah there was no way that Dak was going to survive one more turn. He had double ballista. In, in the, right. In the first game, I, if I don't take the soul ring, I'll move the deck to five, right? Yeah. And then he can play... And it still takes th- between two to four damage the next turn, right? Well, he'll play ballista... For, and you can't... You, yeah, let, he'll, let me, he'll hit let with me the finish, Let me finish, Kevin. <laughs> he keep energy. Yeah. He, he, he'll play ballista for two, and then he can attack... He can animate the factory at the same time and attack attack yeah. it to, to three. So he can't yeah. quite kill the deck but that turn. It dies the next turn. Well, I'll move the the deck back up to back up to four, mm-hmm. and he can then attack the ballista with ballista. But at that point, I will actually have a mentor in play. So he yeah, I mean, I, I'm not and sure. And he can play a, another ballista. Well, he can play ballista because or he's... he can play ravager. Um, or, it, well, but, or both. But the, but the, <laughs> right, but the point is that he can't both kill mentor and deck. So the deck actually I'm, performs the useful. I'm not function. sure about that. The deck is it, it, I it, I don't think I think he has enough mana with Academy. If you keep the Soul Ring, I think he has enough mana to kill both Dak and Mentor on that turn. It well, only takes ha- a it only takes a Ballista at two or a Ravager plus Ballista at two to do it. I don't I think that he could if he plays the Ravager and sacrifices his Thorn and the Ravager mm-hmm. and puts it on the Ballista, he would have well let's see. The Dak will be at the deck would be at three, and the mentor will be at, is obviously two, unless I could somehow pump it, which I assume I can't. He would need five. He would need to get the Blissed to five, which I don't think he can do right there, unless he sacrifices everything. Well, let's put it this way. So he goes to his turn and plays another land. Let's say it's a wasteland and animates factory and attacks deck. Do you block with no. your uh, mentor? No, but then the, then, okay. then the deck goes to from three to one. So he's still... Yeah. And he has a Ballista in play. Right, so from the prior turn, a one-one ballista. So that's one way, and he has another second no, ballista in hand and at least four mana thanks to the academy. No, he didn't play a one-one ballista. He only played, he played a ballista for one on turn four, which was two turns after the, or turn after this. Oh, okay. So he can just play a ballista for two then, at least, and either kill Dak or the mentor. Well, we're going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I don't. I yeah, exactly. My, my I mean, my point is that there was no way Dak was going to pay out. For more than no, one but, more turn. No, in that but game. no, I agree with that. But my point is that it does actually perform an important function of sucking up some of the damage that would be aimed at mentor. And so well, it, that's it, okay. it, I mean, it does. Oh. It yeah. It it actually allows me to. It gives me an opportunity to do some other things. Either he has to choose the mentor or the. You know, we're 
we're spending too much time yeah. on this this top eight match. <laughs> the reason I introduced this top eight match is because this match is a fulcrum for how I think about the metagame. And so I really mm-hmm. wanted to analyze this match, understand what I should have done differently, and then inform how I play going forward. Um, you know, I lost to Jazza in the April event, and I switched because of losing him from Fragmentize. I had four Fragmentize to the Ingot Chewer package because my basic theory is that, first of all, by force is not a realistic way to be able to win these matches. By force is is very good on paper, but I think its greatest weakness is that you cannot come from behind. And I, I mean, if you look at all these challenges, I mean, Jazza has won like three of them in the last six, or there was one, I think the April, the uh, May 22nd challenge, there was a top eight glitch where they didn't actually have a top eight. And so Jazza just scooped in the top eight after he was first in the Swiss because he got the prizes, right? So why would you play the top eight? They actually right. had to manually go in and re and do a top eight pair like 15 minutes after the Swiss ended, which is pretty abysmal. <laughs> but um, anyway, the point is that my analysis <laughs> of the metagame is that Workshops is the best deck. And and so right. I wanted to build the Jeskai Mentor deck to have the best possible chance to compete with Workshops. And my analysis from my April top eight, where I lost to Jazza, was that I was ill-prepared. That is, that Fragmentize, having four Fragmentize and all that stuff was not sufficient. And part of the reason was because, again, you need to have your maximal chances of being able to move um, stuff. Uh, and Ingot Chewer is simply the best. Now, the problem with Ingot Chewer is that it's dissynergistic with Jace Prince Prodigy. So the question is, you know, in, in the April event, I was siding in a fourth plow and four Fragmentize and balance. I, maybe I had balance, I don't remember. But the point is, how do you maximize your chances of beating Workshop? And I've decided after testing and you know and thinking it through that you really need to have a, a critical mass of spells to flashback with Jace, which means, in my opinion, at least two fragmentized between the main deck and sideboard, a balance, and at least three plows. Okay. But you also need to have four Ingot Chewer because it's your best anti-workshop tactic. Now, it's obviously not great against Hanger Backwalker, but Hanger Backwalker isn't seeing play right now. Um, it has definitely fallen out of favor. Right. It's not but the thing that replaced it is also bad for Ingot Chewer, right. and that's precursor, precursor Golem. Goes, no question. But Ingot Chewer is good against Thorns. It's good against um, a lot of. It's good against Ballista, um, and it also actually has the advantage that once you get to five mana, it's a two for one. It destroys an artifact, and it can come into play even under multiple Thorns. And that actually happens happens quite a bit at three three because the way the Workshop deck is structured right now with Foundry Inspector and stuff like that, it often just attacks with a pair of you know, like a, a Revoker, a, a Foundry Inspector, and a, like a 2-2 or 3-3 Ballista. So, mm-hmm. the, I mean, it swarms you with small creatures is the way the deck is constructed right now. So Yeah, Ingot Chewer can, and, and, can, in those scenarios, sometimes be even better than a 2-for-1. It can be a 1-for-1 one one that then just sits there and, uh, and acts there. like moat exactly, for a while. Exactly. Yeah. So I found Ingot Chewer mm-hmm. to be the card that's necessary to compete with Workshops. I'm not saying it wins, but it's necessary to compete. Also... Mm-hmm. I have found that in the in the uh, one of my losses in the April, I went one and one against White Eldrazi in the Swiss of the April challenge. It was my only loss in the Swiss, I think. No, no, I didn't. That's not right. I actually lost my only loss in the Swiss in the April challenge was to uh, Andy Probasco in the mirror in, in the final round of the Swiss. But um, my point is, I did lose in some matches in uh, the the May challenge I played to uh, White Eldrazi. And the reason is because White Eldrazi slows down the, the game tremendously, and I realized that Fragmentize is just too inconsistent against... A, I need to reliably beat Chalice for one. Chalice for one is very important, right. because in the course of a three-game match, Chalice for one is going to come into play at some point. 
And so I feel like it's necessary. I need to have a reliable answer to it. So that's another reason why I, I play Ingachu. So that's a very roundabout way of saying that my thinking, my positioning in the format is I want to be able to design a Jeskai Mentor deck that has the best possible, or at least a very solid workshop matchup, number one. Number two, I believe that the other thing you have to be able to compete against is Paradoxical Outcome. And I tried two different strategies against Paradoxical Outcome. The first is I tried a really heavy Red Blast approach, and I tried that in a daily before the 6-17 challenge, and I got crushed by Paradoxical Outcome. I did. <laughs> like, I went in five Red Blasts. I was like, well, let's try this five Red Blast approach that has zero Stony Silence. And I went back to Stony Silence. I believe that essentially the, meta the vintage metagame is structured like this. You have the workshop decks, which there are a variety of flavors or approaches, but they all have the same core cards. They have Thorn, they have Revoker, they've got, you know, Trinisphere, Chalice, Golem. Then you've got the Jeskai Mentor decks, which basically look the same. They use the DAC Delve Draw Engine. And by DAC Delve, I mean JVP DAC Delve Draw Engine. You know, three mm -hmm. or four mentors. Then you've got the Paradoxical Outcome decks, which come in different variants. And then you've got Oath and Dredge. And to me, that's kind of the overall metagame. And here's how I think about it. You design the Jeskai Mentor deck primarily to be to compete with workshops. You have a solid mirror plan. And then you would, you know, with Red Blast and Balance, and I use Mystical Tutor for Balance as a key play in the mirror. And then against Paradoxical Outcome, the key is 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 Stony Silence. Stony Silence, if you can get Stony Silence down, you have even if their deck isn't all in on like like our vintage champs deck, Kevin, with Seed of the Synod, it creates tremendous right, right. hard advantage over the long run. So they can't use their like their, you know, tops and things like that to get card advantage over the long run card quality and all that stuff. So and then for Dredge and Oath, you just play with Containment Priests and, um, and, and Cages. So in essence, my view of the metagame is this. The two main decks are Workshops and Mentor. And then the third main deck is Paradoxical Outcome. And the two fringe decks are Dredge and Oath. And the way that my deck attacks them is I use Cyborg cards for Dredge and Oath. I have a critical mass of Fragmentize, um, Containment Priest, and Cage for Dredge and Oath. And then I just, I just go all in on Stony Silence for Paradoxical Outcome. And then I will eventually win the long game by having a Stony Silence in play and protecting the Stony Silence against the Paradox Outcome deck. And so my essential view of the metagame is that um, there's an oscillation in Oath and Dredge and Paradoxical Outcome where those go up and down. And they go up and down as a function of how much people are hating them out with Stony Silence, Cage, and Priest. That's it. So I think we're essentially down to a basically like a two-and-a-half deck metagame. It's consolidated around Jeskai Mentor and Shops. With Paradoxical Outcome, people really stuck on wanting to play Paradoxical Outcome. And I, and I love playing against Paradoxical Outcome because I crush it with Stony Silence. And I think the function, Paradoxical Outcome's function in the metagame is essentially, you know, just is people need to play more Stony Silence to beat it. And when they do, it'll, it'll be hated out. That's it. So any thoughts on how I, I just parsed the metagame? Well, I think it's an accurate um, observation about where the decks are and what's dominant. I think that I wonder what your thoughts are on Mindbreak Trap vis-a-vis a little bit of Splash in the Mirror versus Stony Silence and its effect on Paradoxical Outcome. Because yeah, I, I, I have observed a lot of people relying on Mindbreak Trap. I think I think it's real. I don't think it's optimal. I played Mindbreak Trap as a one of in the April events, and I cut it. And I, it's the same way I feel about um, uh, uh, Pyroblast. The, the, the Paradox and Outcome decks are too agile to just die to a well-timed Mindbreak Trap or even a, a Pyroblast. They can just play around it too effectively. You know, but because sure. it's an instant and all that, and it's not just that, it's because they will they will sequence their spells in such a way where they'll like, you know, just play some mana, 
play top, and they'll use the top to do what they need to do. And it's kind of like a spell-like function. And they'll just time, they'll pick their spots. So I don't think Mindbreak Trap or Pyroblast are actually effective alone. I think the only way to reliably beat the Paradox Outcome decks is Stony Silence. I don't think there's any other way around it. That's it, in my opinion. Okay. And I'm, that's why I'm all in on that. So the way I basically do it is I sideboard out. I have one main deck Stony Silence and another in the sideboard. I wanted to play an, a third in the sideboard, but there's no room. But in the in the 617 challenge, my my round one opponent was Brian Kelly playing his Paradoxical Outcome deck, and I got Stony mm-hmm. Silence down and beat him twice with Stony Silence, and that's it. And it was just mm-hmm. like he just could not get over the hump. He played repeal on it. I counted his repeal, and that was game. Uh, you know, because his top, all that stuff just goes away. He just can't. He can't generate the virtual card advantage. So my plan isn't. It's not that I'm saying. Stony Silence is the like the silver bullet, but what it does is it creates a it's like the Trinisphere in the Workshop deck. It creates a long-term asymmetry. With I want to right. actually make the game go long, and the longer it goes, the the more card advantage, virtual card advantage I I have. Um, and so that's kind of my approach. And yeah, um, I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the NYSE actual the, the matches. But um, you know, I beat Brian Kelly round one, and then I played a couple more. Paradoxical outcome decks, and I crushed them. In fact, in the final round of the Swiss, playing for top eight in the 617 challenge, my my I think it was the final round. I played against a Thoughtcast mentor deck, just like our deck, Kevin. And he, I don't think he played a single non-artifact spell the entire game. He played like he played like um you know Cita Sinon, Mox Opal stuff all in turn one. I just dropped Steve, uh, Stony Silence. He was dead. My observation is that. In essence, what's happened, Kevin, is since we played our Thoughtcast Mentor deck, the Paradoxical Outcome decks are moving towards a kind of a hybrid approach, where they're playing like one Mox Opal, right. like two tops, you know, like nine Artifact Accelerants. You know, nine, you know, they're not going all heavy, you know, super heavy. Not C to the Synod decks. Right, they're not playing C to the Synod. And so they're they're trying to hedge. They're playing like, you know, like Trinket Mage and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Thirst. And so the, the way that they're designing their deck is so it doesn't just get completely destroyed by Sony Silence. But I actually don't think there's any way around it. I think that if, as long as you you use Stony Silence like I do as a one for nine, it's, it's kind of like a moat <laughs> is the way I view it. It's a moat. It's a moat. Right. It creates virtual card advantage. I don't think that the Paradoxical Outcome decks are really going to be able to overcome it. I think that if Paradoxical Outcome increases its percentage of the metagame, the solution is to have more Stony Silences in the metagame. And Paradoxical mm-hmm. Outcome has had a huge surge since the restriction. It's interesting that Paradoxical Outcome in the February February Power 9 challenges, two months before the restriction, was 20% of the metagame. But it, it crept up to 20% in May and, and jumped in the 617 challenge to almost 30% of the metagame. So tons of people are playing, like Rich Shea and Brian Kelly, are playing Paradoxical Outcome. And they're getting, I mean, I'm beating them with Stony Silence. And I think Stony Silence is the answer. I think Stony Silence will push is the is the solution to par- to drain tendrils so to speak <laughs> and i think in my experience i beat it every single time i played it so yeah. i think stony stony silence is essentially the paradoxical outcome what containment priest is to oath or cage or containment priest is to um to to dredge it's the answer it's not the silver bullet per se but it creates tremendous card advantage so so then the one of my favorite questions right now is what do you think about stony silence versus shops yeah i I, I was interviewed in the NYSE video, um, and they, by the way, the NYSE had amazing coverage. I mean, they had a, like basically mm-hmm. Lu- Mike Lupo and Andy Andy Probasco did amazing cover. You know, Andy Probasco did Vintage Champs last year, so they're pros at coverage. I was interviewed three times by them during the course of the day, and I encourage people if you haven't to watch the video. I was told they'll put it on YouTube. But uh, Mike Lupo asked me this question, and I said I think it's the great conundrum. 
I <laughs> I don't know what the answer is, but in my experience, I think you sideboard out the Stony Silence against shops, even as good as it seems it is. Because yeah. I need my my artifact accelerants more than they do. I mean I I I pl- you know, it's it's something in the, the three or four years I got to play with Mentor before Gush was restricted, I never fully figured out. <laughs> At the Asian Vintage Championship last in 2015, when I got third place, and I lost because of a play mistake in the top four, um, I really couldn't figure out whether to have Stony Silence or not. I never figured that out. But I, I do believe that um, it has uses. I just am not. Sh- I think it really depends on what your package is, and you'd have to have a tremendous amount of testing to really figure that out. And it probably would never. It probably would. You you would never fully know because there'd be the games where you have like two Moxen that are really good. You know what I mean? And you don't want to turn it off. And I don't know. It's just, it's really difficult. It's the great conundrum, and I don't really have a solid answer. In fact, it's kind of challenging to even talk about because the way that I've designed my deck is that I, against workshops, is I try and pick off, you know, it's interesting. There's no consistency to what I pick off. Players observing my play said I was very aggressive at the NYSE at picking off creatures. Sometimes I pick off spheres, and sometimes I pick off creatures. I kind of fell into a deep, intuitive play that's not really, that's not really my style i'm more of a forward thinker an analytic player mm-hmm. but because i've been doing so well with this deck i just kind of fall into a kind of deep intuitive play which is very very responsive to the board state mm-hmm. and less less responsive i think to kind of strategic foresight maybe so and i i think the stony silence is is just does not is not where i i've been been successful against shops or where i really want to be mm-hmm. so that's the best i can say on that it's a okay. good question but that's well i am less let let us say I am less um, uncertain than you, but I think perhaps, your maybe a little bit more results oriented. I say I say you board it out every time. I don't want yeah, that's I mean, what I've I don't trying. want to stone rain myself against thorn decks. Yes, it's just that exactly. simple. The the truth is is that every <laughs> once in a while you could play a hundred games with Stony Silence in your deck, and you know a couple of games here or there, maybe five to ten you could still win with it in play and it would be good because it would shut off the ballistas and narrow their options a little bit. But I think you're going to lose a significantly larger portion of those hundred games because you have that card in your deck. I, I agree. I think I agree with you. That's where I've come down. So my cyborg plan against workshops is I cyborg out Stony Silence, four Mental Misstep, and two Pyroblast. I bring in four Ingot Chewers, one Fragmentize, one balance and one mount. Mm-hmm. So I sideboard out seven cards. The rest of my sideboard is then one pyroblast, one stony silence, three cage, and three containment priest. And that's my entire sideboard. Yeah. So I dedicate fully half of my sideboard to shops. The other six cards, seven, se- uh, seven of the eight cards to, um, um, well, the three cages and three priests, um, and one fragmentize. Uh, sorry, the three cage, three priests are for ca- for oath and dredge. Uh, and I bring in one of the fragmentizes against oath. And the last card is one pyroblast, which I bring in. It's paradox, paradox outcome in the mirror. So yeah, and as essence, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty simple model of the metagame, but um, yeah. Let's switch gears then and talk about what you did face in New York. It's, it was a really fascinating event. So in round one, um, I played against a guy who was a very skilled workshop deck. And it was like, okay, I'm going to start the tournament playing workshops. 
you, I think you, you remember this, Kevin, but in the Vintage Championship, I think of eight of nine rounds, I played against Thorn decks. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm cursed. I'm cursed. I always seem to play against Workshop decks. So the focus and thought I really put into the, you know, the Jazza match, you know, thinking about the Jazza match, I think really well prepared me. It wasn't that I actually, because I, I played an identical deck. I didn't actually change anything in my deck. But I think the key point about the Jazza match is that I should have played those cards differently. Right. And they were, it's a it's a kind of a difficult match to wrap your head around because there's so many options and there's so many different lines of play and none of them actually clearly win. But all you're trying to do is kind of not lose. Right. What's the how do I thread the needle mm -hmm. to not lose, to stay in the game? So I played workshops round one and in and it was a really interesting match. I don't remember the specifics per se, but what I remember is that if I had one more life in game one, I would have won game one okay. because it came down to I couldn't force and or fetch and then finally generate more monk tokens with the mentor. So he played a final threat I had to force, and then he was able to attack and I with one extra um, creature, and I couldn't block with my mentor to monk tokens. So I lost game one by one point of life. Um, in games two and three, I won. I don't remember anything about them, but I remember <laughs> they were... I, I, I pretty much crushed him. with a, He was playing workshops. Oh, I do remember this. In game three... <laughs> <laughs> at the pinnacle moment he played a chalice for three against me instead of a chalice for one wow yeah and i didn't have a mentor in play and you know it's interesting you know like i said my deck is designed to beat chalice because i have four ingot chewers um but he i still would have won had he played chalice at one but because i had i had i had one mentor in play when he played chalice for three uh, but I drew another one thereafter. But my hand was like, I had Mystical Tutor. I drew Mystical Tutor, and I had a Preordain, and I drew Gush. So I would have been able to play Mentor. If you played Chalice at 1, I would have been able to play Mentor and play a bunch of one-ofs into it and Gush. But the Chalice it for 3, prevent. I, I drew a second Mentor very shortly thereafter, prevented me from playing Mentors, but I was able to play around it so easily. Because I just like, I think what I did was I Mystical Tutored for... Because you can't Mystical Tutor for Ingotchu. I think I Mystical Tutored for Fragment. I think I Mystical Tutor for Fragmentize. And I played... No, I actually played, had Jace Fringe Prodigy in play, or I played it shortly thereafter. I was able to flash back some things. I don't remember exactly what happened, but all I remember is that I think I told him at the end of the match, had he played Chalice for one, he would have slowed me down a lot more because right. I wouldn't have been able to accelerate quite as quickly with the Mentor. Right. Because I was able sure. to go really nuts. Nuts. I think I Mystical for Ancestral. And then Jay's friend's prodigy flashed it back and just went bananas. And then I and then I flashed back the mystical tutor to get fragmentized to um to remove the the chalice. I think that's what happened. Right. I like the, I like the word bananas. Yeah. <laughs> um. In round two, I played Ryan Glacken. <laughs> Eventual a, champion Ryan Glacken. In, yeah. In a match that was actually streamed. So if you go to the Tales of Adventure, if it's not on YouTube, they actually stopped recording after round two or three. So it's the first video. And I beat him really quickly in two quick games. I think the games were over in like 20 minutes. I 2-0'd him. And it was like, you know, I dacked. I think I, I have to watch it, but I think I, I don't remember this, this match or not, but I think I stole a Foundry Inspector and killed him with it. I'm not sure if that was him, but that was one of my workshop opponents. Right. And I just, I just went, I think I, this was a game where I resolved Dak and just was able to steal some things and generate some virtual card advantage. But anyway, you can watch that video. Um, and see my round two match against Ryan Glacken. Round three, I played against Hank Zhang, who Joe Brennan told me is one of the best players in that, I don't know what you call it, Mid-Atlantic Corridor, Kevin? Yeah, didn't he win? Um, what did he win? 
earlier this year or last year. I don't remember what, but it was yeah. one of those large East Coast events that he won. Maybe it was the Eternal Extravaganza. Yeah. Well, we have Hank Zhang's deck deck list, um, but um, basically he played a paradoxical mentor deck, but it wasn't like ours. It was more like um, more like the style of um, Brian Kelly. So I have his deck list. Yeah, he played um, three paradoxical outcomes, four men. Mentor, three Jace Fringe Prodigy, one Snapcaster, one Gush, one Diggs, one Treasure Cruise. So it's it's a hybrid approach, right? But the artifacts he has are Lotus Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, five Moxen, and I know he has Sensei's Divining Tops. Oh yeah, yeah two Sensei's two Divining Top. And one Explosives. And so he's kind of like minimal on the things that return, right? But he does have, a, he has a Snapcaster Mage too. Um, game one, so this is the first Mirror match. I'm putting Mirror in... in, in Mm-hmm. Uh, air quotes because he's got he's really a hybrid deck between Jeskai Mentor and Paradoxical Outcome Mentor. But um, in game one, we played a very very intense match where it was swingy. Like I had the advantage, he had the advantage, I got the advantage back, and then we were both in top deck mode. And then he actually top deck better first. And I actually reserved resolved the first. He actually went turn one or turn two Mentor. I pl- I forced no. He had turn one Lotus Mentor and I forced it in game one. And they played another mentor, and I plowed it instead of forcing it, even though I had a force, and that completely resolved. And I thought I was way ahead, but he, I just, there were, you know, we got into a top deck mode where he drew better in top deck, and then I lost. Um, game two um, was really, really interesting. I probed him on turn one, and I saw his hand, Kevin, was insane. <laughs> it was, it was um, land, mana crypt, mentor, um, gush, treasure cruise um top i think it was just something like that the the first four cards were for sure he had all that um like he basically has turn one mentor and then like turn two gush and i'm just gonna get crushed because i don't have force and i don't know what to do so but here's what happened i um i probed him and i had stony silence in my hand and i preordained on turn one and i saw in my top two cards black lotus (laughs) so i played black lotus stony silence (laughs) right wow (laughs) yeah and he was completely screwed that game. The rest of the game, he got like you know he he had he couldn't play mentor. He went turn one land. I think he had a turn two land, and then turn three he gushed into mentor. But I easily either plowed or forced it, and then I just made him go a long game where uh, he played like soul ring, mana vault, and top that game. Wow. And all I had to do was just make the game go long, and I eventually won the long game. Awesome. That was game two, right? That was game two. Game three was totally bizarre. Um, it was totally bizarre because he kept a hand of seven. I kept a hand of seven. And I probed him early on. I Actually, he played turn one Ancestral and I forced it or misstepped it. Or maybe Pyroblasted it. Uh, no, it had to be forced or misstep. I probed him like on turn two or three and I saw his hand. And his hand, Kevin, was balance, mox, mox, land, land. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, how do I take advantage of this situation? And he did get a top down, I think, or something like that. But basically, I had balance in my opening hand, too. I could have balanced him after seeing his hand down to, like, I think I would have lost a land and he would have lost two cards in his hand. But I decided not to do that because okay. it, just didn't, it just didn't make sense. I'd rather, you know, whatever. So the critical play was, I mean, the, the key, key thing is that he didn't have any counter magic or draw he just was his whole plan is to try and balance right and i had a mentor right. in play so there's no reason to go well on a mentor so i actually played mystical tutor on his end step got ancestral ancestral but i also want to be careful that i don't get totally screwed by balance i had a force in hand 
um, after I mystical for Ancestral, either before or after, I'm not sure which. But I had it Force of Will. And the critical play is in that game is I have Dak Faden and Force, but Dak is my only blue spell. So I have to decide at this post-mystical turn, do I play Dak Faden and plus it and try and draw a blue spell to be able to force the balance? Or do I play Mentor, go all in on Mentor here, assuming that my Force will be able to stop his balance? That's the key play. Which would you do, Kevin? Well, I don't know. I'd, I'd probably be inclined to do what you did and just try to force that balance. Because yeah, so I even, yeah, I even if that balance resolves, it's not the end of the world, right? Yeah. So, But, well, the thing, it is the end of the world now because I've just refilled my hand. And I even have library, I think. Because but I'm how, at seven. How many cards now the balance? You, oh, you were at seven? Well, mm. post, I go mystical tutor, ancestral. I think I'm like up at seven at this point. Six or seven cards. B but that's before casting mentor. Yes, before casting mentor. Okay. Well, I, I, I didn't realize that keeping the seven with library was at stake necessarily. But if you're going to fight over his balance with force anyway, then you're still going to be down around three cards exactly. either way. So I decided I was just going to go all in and mentor. And I played mentor and I generated like two tokens on the spot and passed the turn. And he, I don't, I think he drew, I don't remember what it was, top or brainstorm or whatever. But he um, essentially went all in on the balance, and he had a Pyroblast or a Flusterstorm to protect it. Mm -hmm. So he countered my... And I was blown... Not blown out, because I went down to, like, two cards, and the two cards were really good still. <laughs> but it was it was, it was was not nearly as good as it would have been had I just played Dak. Right. Dak would have been the correct play, plusing Dak. But I, I, you know, I clawed right back into the game and then eventually came back over, but it was a lot closer than it would have been had I gone gotcha. the Dak route. Gotcha. So I, I won round three against Hank Zhang. And then this is where things get really strange. So I, <laughs> you were 3-0? So yeah, I'm 3-0. Um, round four, I play against a guy from Ottawa. And um, I have no idea what he's playing. He's, he says he's Canadian. And <laughs> I think his name is Chris. <laughs> um, he mulligans to five in game one. And I probe him. And it's like Mountain, City of Traitors, Magus of the Moon, Goblin... Go goblin rabble master and like i think a second goblin rabble master oh no <laughs> yeah <laughs> but my opening hand has strip mine so i i know all i'm gonna strip mine him right and then and and whatever so he goes mountain and i strip mine him and i think i'm screwing him but he actually draws another mountain so i have to i have plow so i basically have to he in turn two he plays magas and i actually i think i had turn one ancestral too Wow. I play turn to um, Tundra or fetch land, and then when he plays the um, the Magus of the Moon, I fetch Tundra and float a white mana, let Magus resolve, and then plow it. Right. And then sure. I I eventually, you know, like the turn after that, I think I play Mentor and and I have Library going too. So I have Mentor and Library, and I just keep drawing drawing card, and it's ridiculous. So I I just crush him. But games two and three, game two he plays turn two Blood that I can't stop even though I have basic island because I don't have a basic planes anywhere. So I can't right. fragmentize it. Right. And I didn't have force of will. So I lose to that. And then, and I can't find Pearl or Lotus, even though I'm searching with preordains and ponder. I think I played like three preordains and treasure crews. I <laughs> still could Yeah. I couldn't find a Pearl or Lotus. And then in um, game three, he has, I probe him and he has turn one Magus of the moon because he has, um, <laughs> Chrome Mox, uh, right. Ancient Tomb. He has Magus and, and Blood Moon, and I'm just, I lose to that. I lose to that. Yep, that's a metagame deck for you. Yes, it is. Very frustrating to that. Um, after that match, this really nice geek guy came up to me and asked me to autograph and sign his um, his Gush book. So I did that. I did an inscription. He had a beautiful hard copy of the Gush book. 
Um, I went to use the restroom. I came back, and my next round is against the guy who I was just talking to. <laughs> I oh, the gush nice. He's he's playing Punishing Oath round five. Okay. And he begins the match by telling me that he's been very lucky this this uh tournament. He's had good luck. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a funny thing to say. But he did have turn one Orchard Mox Oath. <laughs> okay. And by the way, I really like main deck Fragmentize over by Force, partly because I found right. that I have a non-trivial chance of being able to Mystical Tutor for Fragmentize and actually resolve it with all my sure. misstep and all that stuff. But what's funny is that um, I didn't have Fragmentize, and he did have turn one. It was I think it might have been turn one, possibly. I think it was turn one Oath, but he got the Orchard on turn two or three. But he, um, I did actually draw Force of Will the, um, after he played Oath, because I think he was on the play. But he got the orchard. I tried to plow the token to buy myself a turn, and he forced pitching something to stop my plow token. And I thought about scooping right there, but I decided I wanted to see his deck. Sure. And he he oathed, and the Emrakul was the last card in his deck. No way. <laughs> yeah, Gr- 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 Gristlebrand was in his hand, and the Emrakul was literally the last card. Wow. And uh, even though he had a drag a dragon's breath in his graveyard, he couldn't draw a card for his turn, so he lost. So you so you got hit said, by Emrakul. It, no, I didn't because he never got to his attack step. Oh, I'm sorry. It was the last card. Okay, yep, you're right. He just dies the, with a hasty Emrakul yeah, in play. <laughs> yeah, he said, I said, don't you, I said, you you can't draw a card in your draw step. He's like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh, that's what happened in game one. Game one. I, I said, don't worry, that's happened to me many times. It's true, it has. Um, yeah. So game yeah. two, I had like turn one, cage, that we fought over, like turn, and I had like, I, I ended up the game, the game I had cage, cage, and priest in play, and I quickly Good kind of dispatch, quickly dispatched him. Yeah, I think I actually fragmentized also one of his oaths, I, and then I mean I just I really I, oh actually he had no permanence in play at the end of the game. <laughs> I stri- I strip mined his land, I dac faden two of his moxen, and yeah he had no permanence at all at the end of Good the game. Grief. Yeah, it was a blowout. <laughs> Round six. So you're three and you're three and one. No, you're no, four, four and one. Excuse me. Yeah, four and one, and I played two shop decks, a mirror match, the mountains win again, and, uh, and punishing oath. He was playing punishing fire, by the way. Right. Um, sure. um, in round six, I faced another workshop deck, and it was um, oh my god, I can't remember his name. Oh no, it was David Ada who um was playing workshops. And um, I dispatched him in two quick games. Mm-hmm. Um, he, they weren't particularly close. Um, he had to mulligan to six, I think, in game in both games. But I, uh, I used Dak, and Dak was actually really good this game. I think this is the game actually where I stole Foundry Inspector and killed him with his own Inspector. Okay, um, gotcha. In game two. Um, yeah, they weren't really close. I, I think in game one, I maybe, I don't, I may be misremembering, but I know in a lot of the game ones, my main deck fragmentized was very useful. Um, <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I beat him 2-0. I don't didn't so so that was my third match against Workshops, and so far I'd only lost one game to Workshops in three matches, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was the very first game of the tournament. And then round seven, I played Mark Mike Sorrentino, who um, this was a big match because this is basically for top eight, you know, because well, he, whoever I forget was this the last round of the Swiss? No, it's round seven, but we're whoever wins this okay. can draw the next round into the top eight. I see. So I played him, and I actually beat him in two quick games as well. On shops. So I had yeah, on shops. Um, he he made a a real match of it, but um, it was you know it wasn't. I was never. I think he never really wasn't ahead. I don't remember any specifics, but um, yeah, I beat him two zero. 
And um, I remember him saying he thought he made one critical play mistake, but I don't think it really would have made a difference. So after this, I'm 4-0 against shops, and I'm, what is it, 8-1 in games against shops? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And again, I got cursed playing half my tournament of shops. And then round eight, <laughs> I'm paired against Michael Moore, who was the first in the Swiss, and I'm second in the Swiss. And he, we draw, but he's also on shops, So, but we don't play. So that was the Swiss. So... Um, um... Not Michael Moore, Mike Marr. Marr, yeah. Yes. I, sorry, I'm mispronouncing his last name, but it's yes. I think he Michael might Marr. pronounce. I think he might pronounce it Marr, but I'm not sure. Anyway, okay, it's probably Marr. Um, so yeah, the top eight is announced. Let's go through the. Let's pause and go through the top eight deck list. Sure, no problem. So I'll just go from one through eight and just call out the archetype. In first, Will McGran on shops. In second, Vito Picosa on just Picoso, excuse me, on Just Guy Mentor. In third, Michael Marr on car shops. In fourth, Jose Alasquio Lopez. I don't know if it's he's one of the Spanish because with Rodrigo. Right. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm getting his middle name right. Apologies. He was on Just Guy Mentor. Fifth was Steve on Just Guy Mentor. Six, Nate Hoffman, Paradoxical Outcome Mentor. Seven, Ryan Glacken on Car Shops. And eight, Dan Nelson on Car Shops. So if you're following along at home, that's Workshops has one, two, three, four representatives. And Mentor has one, two, three, four representatives. There's yep. a little bit of variation. Yep. Uh, there's one of the shops list, I think, that wasn't Car Shops. And there's different numbers of the Fleet Wheel Cruisers among them and a few other things like different numbers of golems well the bottom line is that 50 percent of the top eight was mentor and 50 percent of the top eight is shops exactly so much so much for a dci move where they said that they were trying to reduce <laughs> the presence of mentor and reduce the dominance of shops they failed exactly they totally failed they've the mentor and shops have increased their representation in the metagame not decreased so right. i mean you and i you and i are both on record thinking they made a huge mistake in the restrict they should not have restricted gush and that's very obvious now. The restriction of Gush has had no discernible impact on the metagame in terms of curbing the mentor yeah, whatsoever. Mentor. Whatsoever. They should have restricted yeah. mentor, not Gush, and and the metagame would be a lot better right now. But anyway, they didn't, <laughs> and the metagame is screwed up. I think it's a disaster. Now we get to live with it for a while. It's a, I think it's a disaster. I mean, it's it's totally embarrassing for the DCI um, because the the, the metagame of the the European Vintage Championship was only 20% mentor. And the top eight only yeah. had three mentor decks. I don't remember what it was yep. four shops in the top eight, but I think it was only three shops in the top eight. And yeah, this is I a disaster. So. This is a disaster. This is a disaster for the format. I mean, there have been polls. People consider this a. I mean, I think it's like by two to one margin, people are unhappy with the format right now. Um, and they think that the D and also specifically <laughs> unhappy with what the DC. Sean Anthony posted a poll in the Facebook uh, Vintage group asking if people were ha happy with the restrictions, and it was a huge percentage are unhappy. Huge majority. A vast majority right. are unhappy with the April restriction. Well, but so, that kind of goes without saying, right? Because all the data we had beforehand was that only a small, did. yeah, people didn't want this outcome. Yep, it's really, really <laughs> bad. So well, let's uh, let's present, let's go through the deck list a little bit, Kevin, like we normally do. Yeah, um, we've got them. so yeah, which we have all the deck lists. Uh, sorry, we have all but one of the deck lists at the moment, and we should point out that by the time you listen to this, there will probably be another metagame breakdown and 
and decklist breakdown, top eight, top 16, probably as provided by Ryan Eberhardt and Matt Murray. They continue to do excellent work with the stats for these large vintage events. And uh, they've done us a favor by providing us some of the decklists early, that is before their results are published, so that we can talk about these specifics here. But not all the results are necessarily in uh, per se. They haven't right. all been written out and documented yet. So we're going to do our best with what we have, which I think is seven out of the eight top eight decks at the moment. Yeah. <clears throat> but so, anyway, so, so where should we you, begin, Steve? Um, it's up to you. What, where do you want to start? Maybe let's point out the differentiation between the similar lists then. We've okay. got three Jeskai mentor lists. We've got three car shops lists to compare. So we could talk about the similarities and differences there. Yeah, um, just go ahead and go ahead and do that. So let's talk. Let's talk shops first. And I'm just going to look. I'm looking at the pairings here. So I'm going to start with Dan Nelson's list because he's at the top of the pairings bracket on a one versus yeah. eight. So Dan Nelson's list, four Arcbound Ravager, four Phyrexian Revoker, three Foundry Inspector, one of's Metamorph, Lodestone Golem, and Precursor Golem. So noteworthy, one Precursor and one Metamorph. Then four Ballista and two Fleet Wheel Cruisers rounds out the creatures. Then the usual lock components, four Thorn, four Sphere, Trinisphere Chalice, Four Tangle Wire. Now, Four Tangle Wire is not a given anymore these days, so we're going to mm -hmm. point that out. So the noteworthy features here are a Metamorph, yeah. one Precursor Golem, and he has the full four Tangle Wires with only two Fleet Wheel Cruisers. Contrast that with Ryan Glacken's first place list. Yeah, Ryan Glacken had um, three Phyrexian Metamorphs and three, mm -hmm. three main deck Fleet Wheel Cruisers. So that was kind of the difference in his deck. He did not have... Go ahead. What were you did saying? he have Precursor Golem and Tanglewire? I don't think he had either. Interesting. I, I know he didn't have Precursor Golem. He might have had it in the sideboard, but he didn't have it main deck. Okay. So unfortunately, uh, Ryan's is one of the top eight lists that we don't have at the moment. But I, what was what was useful? But you for played the top him twice. Eight, <laughs> yeah, what was useful for the top eight though is that we actually they handed all the deck lists to the players before the top eight, and they actually allowed us to review them while we were sideboarding as well. So yeah, we were good. able to we were given we were given a few minutes to study our opponent's deck list. Right? So yeah. So third place at the end of the Swiss was Michael Marr. His list is also car shops, and compared to the others we've just described, the key differentiators are three Fleet Wheel Cruisers, three Precursor Golem. And zero tangle wire. Zero tangle yeah. wire. His lock components are Trinisphere, Sphere of Resistance, Chalice, and Thorn. He has more creatures right. than the rest because he has a main deck worm coil engine also. But he also has the fleet wheel cruiser and yeah. precursor golem. He's he's really geared, I think, toward the mirror. Yeah, exactly. And he and even then, has the Sky Sovereign in the sideboard. Right. So we don't have all the full lists of the workshop decks, but the the differentiating features these days are the creature base, meaning the presence of Precursor golems, metamorphs, and the distribution of onesie twosie other creatures. But then the real pivot that's become interesting is the presence of tangle wires. Right. Yeah, that that is an interesting development. Uh, I'm not sure how totally relevant it is to my deck because I feel like my deck with Max Moxon does pretty well with or without through tangle wire. But but I think there's been a, de a decision or, or determination among the workshop players to begin cutting tangle wire, which blows my mind. But Hey, it, it may, it, at some level, it makes sense because they're so low to the ground now. You know, without yeah. Golem, with Golem, Tanglewire is just the perfect post Golem card. But when you're really just attacking with three twos or two twos, you know, or three threes, it, it kind of makes sense that it might not give you the time that you really need. 
So so let's switch gears and talk about these mentor oh, decks. Well, hold, then. hold on. I want to make one other uh, observation. So Will Mc, McGran, we don't have his deck in front of him, us, but the key thing he had there was he had four pre, uh, Porcelain Legionnaire in his sideboard for the mirror match. And right. that, allow, that allowed him to really crush the mirror match. In fact, in the semi, in the quarterfinals match, I watched the end of it. In game three, he went turn one. I think it was turn one in, uh, in uh, Foundry Inspector. And I can never remember whether Chief of the Foundry or Foundry Inspector. Which is the one that decreases oh. your the cost? Yeah, Foundry Inspector lowers the cost. Chief of the Foundry makes your creatures larger. That's another feature of his deck in, yeah, in interaction the with the Porcelain Legionnaires. Yeah. Well, whatever that was, I don't remember specifically, but it, I think it's on video. He had yeah. two turn one porcelain legionnaires on the play, I think. And yeah, there was in the match that was streamed. There was an interesting yes. inter, uh, inter uh, choice where he had the choice of playing two turn one legionnaires or the chief of the foundry on turn one into legionnaires. Obviously, playing the legionnaires first and then playing the lord after gets maximum damage. The problem is, is that if you play double legionnaire and your opponent has turn one ballista on two you get two for one and that's really bad so he chose to play the lord first because it's a two three and then play the legionnaires yeah. thereafter which makes it a lot harder to interact with ballista <laughs> interesting that was yeah well that, that, was that easily point. yeah that won him the game he was pretty much winning after that so those are the four workshop decks so then vito picoza was playing uh jeskai mentor which is very similar to the list that you played. He must have taken inspiration from the list that Actually, you it looks recently like he's performed playing, with. Yeah, it looks like he's playing card for card my deck. Yeah, because he's uh, got the, the sideboard's mystic, different. Hold on, he's got the mystical. Does he have the mystical? He's got the stony side one stony silence. Oh no, he has a wasteland instead of mystical. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. That's we that weakens you in the mirror. That's the main deck. <laughs> only main deck difference. No, wait a second. He's got one other main deck difference. He's got a plains and a wasteland main deck. And I don't have either of those. So he went a little bit stronger against shops in the main. I'm trying to figure out what the difference, the other difference. The, I see for sure he doesn't have a mystical here. Um, you have the same counterspell oh, suite? Wait a second. He has one less mocks. So I okay. have both the off-color mocks, and he's got just four on, uh, four mocks, and he doesn't have the emerald. And then his sideboard is yeah, very different. He doesn't have, he has two fragmentized, balanced by force mountain, one ingot chewer. He doesn't have the four ingot chewers like I have. So he has um, two by force. He has one containment. Yes. See, the problem with rest in peace, and the reason I don't like it is because I double my containment priest against oath and against dredge. So I'd rather right. have containment priest. I understand there's punishing fire, but I can counter that a couple of times, you know, at least once. Um, yes, it appears that he's mostly not expecting oath to be a factor and taking yeah. the 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 card that's a double down on he, dredge right i think the i think the biggest difference is is that i have mystical so i have two balances in my sideboard functionally and he doesn't and i can also right. merchant i can also merchant school mystical for balance i can chain that and that's really critical in this in the mirror it's because there's it's very very difficult to stop balance in the mirror match because pyroblast doesn't stop it flusterstorm is heart very rarely can stop it um, and if you have even a small way to protect it, it's, you have to have force to stop, and it's really hard to force balance. It just is. It's difficult. Yeah. Because it's so easy to protect. Um, and balance is so insane with Jace Friends Prodigy. It's really a critical card. <laughs> it is. It's just, it's nuts. Right. Right? Because you flip the Jace and then balance, and then you can flashback preordain or whatever and get right back in the game. Right. <coughs> so, um. So, Jose Lopez, yeah. his list is also very, very. similar. But it's also but. very distinctive. I mean, it's it's functionally a mirror match, but he's got he doesn't have balance. He's got supreme verdict in the sideboard instead, mm -hmm. and he's got and one Jace the one. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, you were about to say one Jace the Mind Sculptor in addition yes. to two Jace Friends Prodigy in the main. 
only right. three mentors and right. two snapcasters so his his creature base is more diverse he also Sorry, has two in what? the main two snapcasters two, yeah he also has yeah. one main deck sudden shock and one more on the sideboard yeah so he's prepared yeah. for the mirror a little bit differently as you observed and yes. the rest of his sideboard is two containment priests one rest in peace one graft digger's cage one mind break trap two stony silence now he does not yes. have a stony silence in the have main one main deck Right, which I think is really problematic if you really want to beat Paradoxical Outcome. I think you have right. to have the main deck Stony Silence. I really well, do. Well, it seems like he was banking on just pulling both of them out of the board and, and facing the Outcome decks less in the in the yeah. main deck. And then it's interesting so, because he was my he was my quarterfinals match though. So yeah. I I don't I was trying to think what would he what's his sideboard plan because he has more cards to bring in than he can sideboard out. Right, he could bring in Pyroblast Swords Path. He can bring in Supreme Verdict and Sudden Shock, and he can bring in Mind Break Trap. That's one, two, three, four, five, six cards if he wants. So you probably don't bring in Path. But no, what are you, you sideboarding? Don't. What are you sideboarding out? He's boarding out by force, clearly. That's one card. Yep. You know. And not... well, depending on how he views the matchup, he may be boarding out Force of Will. He may be boarding out uh, yeah, some number of creatures. Definitely did not sideboard out. I can tell you that. Well, not entirely, but you, yeah. you reduced the number. I think he probably boards out a land. I don't yeah. know. It's tricky. I'd, anyway, re I'd really, just, re really like to pick planes. his brain on that one. I yeah. know he brought in a mind break trap because he used it against. Me. I can tell. Interesting. you Interesting. That. That's a little bit it's of a not, surprise. It's not the card I would bring in either. I agree. He did bring in Supreme Verdict because he had that as well, and he probably brought in Sudden Shock. I He's assume. probably boarded out Swords to Plowshares then. There's Over no way you want like five spot removal spells and a wrath in that matchup. I don't think. So I think he boarded out plows you, in favor of sudden shock and supreme verdict. Did you want to talk about the other mentor deck? I mean, my deck. Yeah. We could, is there anything you want to say about it? So you're referring to Nate Hoffman's list. Oh, sorry, Nate Hoffman's. Yeah, Nate. Nate Hoffman played. So I talked to Nate before. I'll be honest with you. Nate Hoffman is the player I wanted to play in the top eight the most. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to play him. Well, because, I can understand that. Yeah, because it's um, before the tournament, before the top eight, I was talking with him and he said, Kevin, to me, he said, I took your first. This, this is how he started the conversation with me. He said, um, what would you change from your um, vintage champs deck list? That's what he said to me. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. I didn't know how well he was doing. And I said, well, for starters, you should be playing with Snapcaster Mage mm -hmm. because you and I both discovered how insane it is with Paradoxical yeah. Outcome. Both because you can replay the Paradox of Outcome, but also because it gets you the allows you to replay one of the most important cards in the deck, Time Walk. Yeah. And he said he figured that out. But he did he play with one or two? I'm or looking at his I'm looking at his list right now and I don't see any. I don't know. I how... think his I think one of his maybe yeah, maybe he didn't get any, but anyway, that's what I told him. He said he basically took our deck and changed like one or two cards. That's what he said. Yeah, he has brain freeze in the main. It looks like there are very few other differences. Obviously, he doesn't have the four probes, so he's got mystical and yes. What else yeah. did he add? Yeah, he said, "What do you change with?" That's actually the question he said. Is he said from the restriction yeah. of probe, what do you add? I said, "What I would mystical, add is this, merchant scroll." No, what, no, no. What he, he told me, he told me you add the fourth preordain. Mm -hmm. You add um. Actually, I don't remember. Yeah, he said he added mystical and merchant scroll. I think that's what yeah. he said. Yep. And so I that's the that's the difference from our champs list. I told him, I think I told him, and he might have had his friends there. I said, I think you play with Snapcasters. And someone was saying, I told you, I told you. And he said, <laughs> oh, like he wanted to play it, but he didn't. But nice. that's, I really wanted to play against him because I think my deck is the, that's my best matchup in the top eight. But um, I didn't yeah. get to play him. Instead, instead, I think we're ready for me to continue with my report. I played Jose in the quarterfinal. 
Right. And when I saw his deck list, I was a little nervous about it, right? Because it's it's essentially a mirror match, but he's got a lot more for the mirror. It's In pretty hateful. Ways, I really, really wish they had recorded this match because this match was such a classic blue mirror. And it was so interesting with so many different lines of play. And I think that the the, the audience would have really enjoyed, after watching so many workshop matchups, mm-hmm. really would have enjoyed a really grindy slow blue mirror. <laughs> so here's here's what happened. Um hope I'm not going to conflate the game one and game two, but it, I think what happened was, um, yeah, I think this is similar to my round three match where I think I forced an early uh, mentor and then I plowed the second mentor and um, in game one. And I think what happened was I, I, geez, I, it's hard for me to remember. It was very, very back and forth with lots of stuff happening. I think I might have just mystical for ancestral. Oh, geez. You know what? Let me tell you what. Yeah, I just I just don't remember game one very well. Um, I actually I do remember. I think we both played dueling treasure cruises. So he was I wiped him out. Um, but he played it. I played treasure cruise and then he played treasure cruise. And then I finally got over the hump and he couldn't stop my creatures. I think he might have sudden shocked in game one, my mentor, but he couldn't stop my tokens. I think it's what happened. Sure. Game two was far, far more interesting, though. So game two, he played turn one or turn two merchant scroll for force of will, Kevin. Interesting. He could have got gush. Yeah, he could have got gush. He could have got ancestral. My opening hand, though, I think had pyroblast, mental misstep, force of will, Land, counter magic, you know, it was all good stuff. You know, in game one, actually, I think he removed, I think I played two Jaces and he removed both of them. I think that's what happened. Anyways, let me just stick to game. So he Merchant Scrolled for Force of Will and I actually draw in the library and I have this tense moment where I have to decide, do I, I can like play, I can play mana to maximize my counter magic because I have two Pyroblasts and I play Lotus and to mm. deploy both pyroblasts because I only have like I have like Valk, Mox, and a land and Lotus. I have to decide whether to play Library and try and start ramping to seven, or do I play the Lotus and um and a land and to just going down to five cards in hand, but maximize my counter magic. Now I decided since he got forced that he must I don't know. I decided just to play the max maximize the counter magic because I don't want to get in a spot where I can't maximize my counter magic. But I played library. Actually I strip mined him on turn one. I think I stri- I think he mulliganed to six and I strip mined his land and he played another land. And then um yeah, I got I actually got li- like turn three, I maximize my counter magic and I get library down. And he plays draw go. So I get to seven, Kevin, with library in play. Wow. So yeah. He, so his merchant scroll was defensive then. It's totally defensive. So, uh, but I could have gotten on the library like two turns earlier, and I, or at least a turn or at least, and I did probably two. So I play library, and I get to library, and I'm like, wow. I thought the turn before I get to seven, I thought, okay, he's gonna finally do something, right? I've got like plow, pyroblast, pyroblast, force. You know, he does nothing. Just lets me go to seven. So I'm like, okay. So I draw to seven. I pass the turn to him, and then on his end step, I play activate library, and I start drawing with library for a couple of turns. And, you know, and I'm, I'm building a hand that's totally insane. My hand has Gush. <laughs> my hand has Gush, Dig, Mentor, the Double Pyroblast, Force of Will, Preordain. I'm not even playing Preordain. In fact, I could have played Preordain, and I'm just not even playing it, but I'm holding it to pitch to Force. Um, 
And he actually, here's what happens. So I'm playing draw go with library for a couple of turns. And then when he hits seven, he plays his own library. So we've got dueling libraries, which by the way, excellent. Is, uh, is excellent. Yes. I really, really wish they had, they had um, filmed this because it was so such an interesting game. So he makes the first move. He plays Jace, the mind sculptor. And I sacrifice, yeah, I sacrifice my Lotus and I play Pyroblast on it. And he plays Force of Will, pitching a card. Uh, mm. Actually, I don't, I don't have Force of Will at this point. Yeah, I don't have Force of Will. I just have the two Pyroblasts and mental mis- a bunch of mental missteps, like two, maybe one or two missteps. He, I play the second Pyroblast and he Force of Wills it. Really? So he's, yes. He spends four cards to stop my two Pyroblasts. And he's like down to three cards in hand, right? Maybe less. And my hand is Gush, Dig, uh, Mentor. Oh, and I actually, I, I'm sorry. I played Dak, I think, the turn before, and I stole one of his Moxen. Oh, geez. No wonder yeah. he had to act. Yeah. So his plan, what he said after the match, is that he thought he could just play Jace and then start fate sailing me to win the game. Right. That's what he said. But he didn't realize I had Mentor in hand and a bunch of spells. So what I did... Uh, at this point, actually, his Jace resolved, right? Because he forced bit both both my pyroblasts. I actually played. Um, what I could have done here is I could do this. I could go mentor, gush, dig, and be at seven cards and activate library. I could actually right. do that. I, I was sure, like, sure. I was like, now watch this drive, right? Because it's insane. <laughs> I could play mentor and completely refill my. I decided not to play the dig though because I think I immediately drew force of will. And off the gush, or maybe on the turn, and, or with. And I think what happened was I go because I had taken a mox, so I go I like tap his mox, the mox I stole from him, and my own mox emerald, and I and and I played I played mentor. Then I gushed, and I used the dac to discard a superfluous land, and then and so I'm already in such good shape I could play dig here, but I decide not to because I wanted to play a bunch of cantrips instead. I think I think that's what happened. I think the oh no I remember what happened. I remember exactly what happened. I play Mystical Tutor. I think I flashback Mystical Tutor with Jace Vryn's Prodigy, I think, or just regularly. And I play Preordain to draw the Pyroblast will be able to kill. I Mystical Tutor for Pyroblast, and I play Preordain so I can Pyroblast his Jace. And, it, and he has okay. one, one card in his hand. He Mind Break traps the Preordain that would draw the, myst, the Pyroblast. Hmm. He doesn't. Pyro, he could just let me draw the pyroblast and mind break trap the pyroblast, but he doesn't. So instead, and then with my last mana, I play. I decide not to force that. A whole dig and and I play a second preordain and I preordain into the pyroblast so I can just pyroblast it next turn. But at this point, I have a mentor in play with like three monks. Oh, and this is important. His second force of will, or maybe the for, first, he pitched supreme verdict. Oh boy. That's yeah. huge. It's wow. huge. Yeah. So I knew I was in the clear with the mentor. So I don't even need to really, I don't even need to pyroblast his thing. I probably should have just played Dig. But had I played Dig, he would have mind break trapped it. Instead, I right. got to play three one mana spells and generate a ton of monks. <laughs> right. So it worked out perfectly for me, right? Um. Anyway, and and so I attacked his um Jace the next turn, and then I like killed him a turn or two later. So... Uh, among many, many things, that game is an example of why I sometimes board out some forces in the mirror because they can be a yeah. liability. Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. My my sideboard plan is pretty simple. I just sideboard out one stony silence and I sideboard out fragmentize and I bring in balance and pyroblast. Right. 
So it's it's pretty so, straightforward for me. So that was the that was the quarterfinals. You moved on to the semifinals, and who did you face? I faced Will McGran, and this is match was completely covered on the stream, play right. by play. I think I made a pretty big play mistake in game one. So he his turn one in game one is Lotus Wasteland Mox Lodestone Golem. My opening hand in game one has Mox land preordain ponder but no plow and no force and so i wanted to i mm-hmm. wanted to mulligan into a hand that's a little bit stronger and maybe has a second land too um and i i mulligan into almost the identical hand but just six cards so i have to keep it <laughs> i wish i had kept the the first hand because i would have been able to ponder on turn one against lodestone golem mm-hmm. and and i and my hand of six i don't think had a mock so i wasn't able to do anything and I would have hit a second land, then I might have been able to plow, you know what I mean? Remove the, the golem. Sure, sure. If I had been able to find a force of will, though, I would have he would have been completely dead in the water because he had no follow-up plays on because he just Lotus to play the golem. Right, he had two mana. I don't remember much about games at all, even though, but I won that game. Do you remember anything about it, Kevin? No, I, I really don't. <laughs> I, I ended up winning the game. It's overshadowed by game three, which was totally fascinating, right? Right, right. Where he played, I kid you not, Lotus, Workshop, Turn 1, Sphere of Resistance, and Trinisphere. And then a couple turns later, maybe like the next turn, he played Chalice at 1. And, right. I, and I won that game. Yeah. So he played, you know, it, wasn't, it, was, it was Mana Crypt. He played Mana he, Crypt. Yeah. He went Lotus, Mana Crypt. Workshop. Oh, uh, sphere of Resistance. And then like Workshop, workshop Trinisphere, sacking yeah. the, the Lotus. Lotus. Yeah. yeah. And it was really interesting because... Uh, uh, the commentary booth had a couple of had the, the normal commentators Andy and Mike, but then it had a couple of other people watching at the time, including um, vintage workshop aficionados Nick Detweiler and uh, Rafferino. So there were kind of like four commentators going right here, and Nick rattled off a different sequence for turn one for Will that was um, what did he say? He said it would he should have just gone. Uh, Lotus Sphere. Yeah. Because because then if you have Force of Will, he doesn't need to commit his. He has a choice about whether he commits his mana yeah. his mana crypt he, to the board. If the Sphere resolves, he can play Workshop Mana Crypt he, and Trinisphere. No, well. that's the thing though. If the Sphere resolves, he can just go Workshop Trinisphere without committing mana crypt to the board. That's that's the key pivot point oh. because he can do that and test you for for Force and then still have four but mana. If, but if it's not Force, then he can't play Workshop without using the load the mana crypt. Well, I'm if sorry. It's not... Sorry. Let me let me clear. If I don't force the sphere of resistance, he yes. cannot play Trinisphere without playing the mana crypt. Incorrect. He has four mana. He goes. You you said he goes. Oh, I'm sorry. The, you're right. The lotus has one mana floating. Right. Yes. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That play both tests you for force and also avoids dying to your mana crypt, which is what happened. You know, he might have been influenced by game. I'm remembering a little bit of game two now, where he had. Um, just a I I he it was mana screw where he had ancient tomb and soul ring and I oh, I, see. I I ingot sheared the soul ring and he was screwed the rest of the game he well, actually that was really that funny actually be. in game two actually the key thing was I played two moxen on turn one I I thought about whether I was going too far in and I and I regretted it but he ratchet <laughs> bomb he ratchet bombed on turn one off an ancient tomb and yeah. I responded by floating mana and playing my. Uh, what's it called? Snapcaster. Uh, my Snapcaster Viper, whatever. Right. <laughs> Ambush Viper. Viper. Ambush yeah. Viper. Yeah. And and actually, almost that basically killed him because he used yeah. Ancient Tomb like five times. I did most of the rest of the damage with the Snapcaster. But um. Anyway, well, I can see so, why you would say that. And I, as an observer, I thought if you're gonna play double Sphere on turn one, 
and you don't have an immediate follow-up, which he didn't have an immediate threat to follow up with, then I thought playing that mana crypt on turn one that way is is uh, right. is definitely high risk. And well, he sure played, enough... Yeah, it did a lot of... There were 14 turns, and he took seven seven hits. So he only right. hit seven, 50% of the time. Right. But, but you know, it's... I think the mistake that people make is that they look at that game and say, Will lost a Mana Crypt. The truth of the matter is, I would have played very, very differently if the Mana Crypt wasn't racing. Sure, absolutely. I, I had so many lines of play. I could have played Dak yeah. or Mentor in times where his shields were completely down, and I would have had no repercussion. If he actually had threats on the table, I would have had to play very, very different lines of play, right? Absolutely. And there were critical points near the end when you had the choice between playing threats like Mentor and holding up Force of Force Will of because will. the Trinisphere was give, give, keeping you to one spell per turn. Right. I mean, actually, he he did end up playing a, a Ballista for, I think it was like four or five, and I forced it. But right. I could have I could have just as easily killed it before he could attack, and he would have done just five damage to me. Right. You know, um, right. if you actually go through and play-by-play analyze the game, there's a lot of different things I could have done. In both games two and three, I did actually expose a land to Wasteland to play Treasure Cruise under Spheres, <laughs> which is interesting. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I would encourage our audience to watch that particular game, game three of the quarter of the semifinals, I mean, between Steve and Will, yeah. because there was did, a lot of decision-making on both sides. I did actually end up making one critical mis- mistake, and the, the, the judges were telling me to, to hurry up and make a play. The very, very end of the game, I forced... It didn't end up making a difference because he lost to his mana crypt roll, but I forced right. a revoker. And the reason I forced the revoker at the very end was because I didn't want him to... I had Jason's Prodigy going for most of the game, mm-hmm. but I didn't want him to name a, mo- a Mox because I wanted to play the Mentor and be able to play Gush and another spell. Right. And I calculated that if he revoked one of those, I wouldn't be able to do all those. And right. so I, I just wanted to be safe than sorry. But I should have kept that force in hand because he had one card in his hand that I hadn't seen. And if he was baiting me, uh, I would have, I, if he had a, re- because I'd let him whittle my life down with uh, the factory, I could have, if he, that last card in his hand was a ballista, I would have lost it. Y- yes, it, but he had been holding that card for quite some time, right? And he wasn't he had, doing anything. He had passed the turn yeah. with one card in hand and lots of mana multiple times. So you exactly. had a good, a reasonable read that that was not a ballista. Right. Yeah. I was but still, having, I see your point. I was having and flashbacks. Also... I was having flashbacks to the 2011 top four of the Vintage Championship, where I, <laughs> where, where Paul was sandbagging horse the entire game. Had I played Click and Spell, Click and Spell Pierce instead of going for the win, I would have beat him. So right, I was, right. I was just flashing back to that, and I didn't. I ended up forcing it, but it, it was he lost in the Mana Crypt anyway, so it didn't really matter. But I mean, I was, I was never going to lose. I was never really in danger because I had right. Mentor and Dak the whole time, so it didn't really matter. You just had to make a calculus of what was the what was the worst possible scenario, and you exactly. realized at a couple of key moments, yeah. Yeah, the ending of that game was really interesting. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, it's not that interesting because it was just coin flipping, but your decision making in the face of potential threats was was key. The the coin flipping structured the game and structured my decisions. I knew that there was a good chance I was letting my life get whittled down because if he just flip misses 50% of the time, I realized that 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 he'll die before his revoker kill, his factory kills me. Absolutely. I just wanted to let that play out as long as possible before actually having to defend myself because that way I can maximize, but I had two force of wills and, and blue spells in my hand. So if all I, you know, I wait to the last possible minute to play a mentor because you don't, you don't, if you don't, you don't play something unless you need to, right? So, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So well, I, I do it, think the I commentary was interesting on that match too. 
I do think that I made a mistake in game one. I should have, I should not have mulliganed my game one. And I think that actually, that decision actually colored what happened in the finals. But we'll talk about that in a second. So go ahead, Kevin. What were you saying? I was just about, I was saying that the commentary was interesting in that match too, as they were following along your decision making and his. So it's a good one yeah. to go back and rewatch. Definitely for people to, to, to watch that. So that, le- that leads us to the finals. So by the way, against Shops, after Will McGran, who I lost one game to, I lost, I played Shops five times. And do you remember how many games I'd lost, Kevin? Uh, two, right? Yes. I was yeah. 10, 10 and two in games against Shops. <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously my deck was pretty good against Shops, right? I mean, that's right. fair to say. My, it yep. was well designed against Shops. So, uh, and I also felt really, really good going in against the finals for two reasons. One, I already beat Ryan in the Swiss. And number two, mm-hmm. I w- this was finally the first match where I'd be on the play because I was a higher seed in the Swiss than Ryan. <laughs> right. So all signs were pointing to good for you. Yeah, good to me. actually had a really interesting kind of opening um i had a really strong hand actually with a lot of mana and a lot of plays and i had to decide how to sequence them i his opening though was was mox emerald sorry mox ruby academy revoker mm-hmm. so he had was he had mana problems right and i didn't think he was going to be able to play a lot of spells so and i had so much mana i had like basic island I had uh, Pearl, uh, Mox, Emerald, all these Mox in, all this mana, like tons of lands in hand. So I decided I need to accelerate into finding spells, but I actually fell into a trap where I bottomed so many lands. And I can't, for some reason, I bottomed a Pearl and played a, an Emerald. And he ended up just playing like five spheres. He played like a Sphere of Resistance, a Thorn, a Sphere, a Metamorph on a Sphere, a Metamorph on a Sphere. It, 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 was, it was actually five Spheres of Resistance. There were no Thorns. You're right. He played yeah. two spheres and three metamorphs. Is that what it was? Or two no, metamorphs? it was no, it was all four spheres plus a metamorph. That's it. That's what he ended the game in play with. I thought it was. I thought there were two metamorphs at least. Well, at, at any rate, he had five yeah. spheres. Yeah. Yes, he had five spheres, and I could have easily overcome that had I played all my lands and Moxen <laughs> that I drew, but I bottomed <laughs> right. them all. Right. I bottomed them all because I thought this would be playing out like a regular game, and so I got. I just got screwed by that. I really did. And I couldn't overcome it. I, sh- I should have played very, very differently, but I didn't, I just did not, and none of the games, none of the matches I played against that entire day played anything like that. So I just well, wasn't. And it's, for- it's, it's an unusual outcome, full stop, right? The commentators yeah. made a point about that. So I think Andy uh, Provasco said, I've never seen a game that had fully five spheres of resistance in play. Right. It was very unusual. Game two, my deck is, does what it does, and I, um, I beat him. I, I don't remember specifically what happened to you, Kevin. Uh, n- not exactly. I just remember you rolled him pretty well that game, that your your sideboard plan and all your resources came together pretty perfectly that game, right, I think. Right, right. Then in game three, I kept a hand in game three, much like game one of the of the semifinals, where I mulliganed a hand that had, um, you know, Moxland, Preordained, and, and Ponder, but did not have did not have plow or force, I kept a hand, and he literally went turn one. He emptied his entire hand on turn one. Yeah, it was pretty he, gross. He played Foundry Inspector, Foundry Inspector. He went Workshop, Mox, Soul Ring, Foundry Inspector, Foundry Inspector, Soul Sphere of Resistance. I think there might have been one other Mox in there. And so I'm facing six damage, you know, with the Sphere in play. 
I don't think I had a Mox, Kevin. I think I just had lands. And then he played a, a Thorn on turn two. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't play spells the rest of the game. I had tons of land. But, I mean, the only way I win that game... Even if I have a Force, I don't think I win that game. Maybe if I have a well, Force, I can Force the Sphere. But it's hard to... I mean, I, yeah. what do I do? I, I'm I'm going to play turn one Ponder, and then then he plays turn two Thorn. And then I could maybe maybe well, you or apply yeah. one of the Foundry Inspectors. It's really hard right. to win. If you run, yeah, if you have Force of Will and then you ponder into Plow and Ensure, you could get there or balance in yeah. theory. But I that was, I mean, that balance. was a super hard game to win from your side. It's easily the one of the probably the hardest. I mean, obviously beating Trinisphere, Sphere of Resistance, and um, Chalice at one is a pretty remarkable feat. But yeah. but you know. Six damage on turn one is bigger than a lodestone golem. With even the modest amount of of tempo plays, is almost impossible yeah. to defeat. Yeah, it was like an extra large lodestone, but even worse because it was a sphere resistance and not the lodestone, which exactly. allows you to play moxen. Exactly. And then a, a thorn on two. Yeah, it was pretty rough. Pretty rough. Pretty hard to to be to win. So it's very just. It's it's. Yeah, it's interesting though because if that turn one sphere is a thorn. Then Ingotshur is online. Exactly. I could kill one of the things, and I've doubled my, the length of the game. Yeah. So. Very dis. Well, it's a very yeah rough way to end, but it was a really strong performance. So you you basically you lost three. I'm sorry, you lost four games against shops on the day, having played shops what six, six times. times, and I went yeah. eleven and four against shops and games. Right. So eleven it's, and four. It's pretty. Pretty good record, uh, all told, for the way you structured your deck. <laughs> right. I mean, I and I play. Yeah, I played shops, and again, I got second place in the vintage challenge the week before, losing to shops in the finals. So, right. seems to be a p pattern to me, despite beating shops the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to figure out a way to trade one of those wins in the Swiss for a win in the finals. <laughs> exactly. Your set. Exactly. Pretty amazing <laughs> tournament, though. Pretty amazing tournament. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Do you have new thoughts on the shape of the format I would, going I wouldn't, forward? I would not change a single card in my deck. Not a single card. I loved every way I okay. composed it. I, I, you know, it would be tempting to add like a by force to my sideboard, but you're cutting a card that is better when I'm under the gun, when you're behind the eight ball, you know? Right. Like, there, like if you watch the top eight, there's a point where I, you know, in, against Will, I think the turn, turn where I, no, it was against, um, might have been against Will or, or Ryan. It was against Will. Where I mystical for fragmentized to win the game because I have uh, I clear one of his blockers and then attack with the monks because he's two. But it's like right. if that didn't matter if that was by force. Yes, I had enough mana to wipe his board, but I don't need by force there. You know what I mean? It's like sure. all I need is the pinpoint removal to be able to just you know from behind come from behind and I'll win from ahead. You know my, my come from be yeah. anyway. I, there's nothing I would have changed in my deck and there's nothing I can see changing going forward. It's got a perfect plan for the mirror. It's got a perfect plan for paradoxical outcome. It's got great plans for shops. The only thing I could consider even doing, the only thing that even floated into my mind, is the only other loss I had was against the Mountain Winds again. If I had <laughs> to worry about that deck, if I had a basic planes, and the only card I would cut for a basic planes would be, I would cut the strip mine for a planes. That's it. Sure. So if I had a basic planes, that might have been useful actually against the shop decks as well, because I would have had more... In the top eight, I would have had another basic land instead of having to fetch tundra all the time and having a third basic right. land might be useful but i don't know what i would cut besides strip mine and strip mine is so good situationally good that i don't i just i wouldn't i don't there's nothing i would cut i mean what would i cut for basic planes in the main <laughs> deck or sideboard nothing i really want to cut so no i think you're right that and that points to why i've been preferring the blue white lists lately it's just the narrower decision trees as it pertains to your mana especially post sideboard yeah but i but i've decided to go all in on 
Ingachur, and I don't see myself changing that anytime soon. Ingachur is still really good. Yep. Still really good. And having a really high number of one mana removal spells is super nice. Yes. It means I'm not going to lose yeah. the Chalice at one. And yeah. um, it means that, yeah, I mean, it's just, it worked really well. So, I mean, I yeah. I killed someone with an Ingachur, I think, earlier in the day. Um, <laughs> That's always fun. Yep. <laughs> so we're going to have multiple shows coming up in the near future obviously our hour of desertation set review will be coming very shortly the set's not fully spoiled yet but it will be this week so we'll be recording that after the fourth of july holiday and we also have as you alluded to early in the show steve we're going to have a, a full metagame update uh, in the near future that takes into account recent online and paper events and looking right. at the fallout from the restrictions yeah so we've, uh, you know, you obviously made your opinion known here, but that's not much of a surprise to our listeners. But yeah. we'll get some some greater detail in the documentation of how things have shaken out. Yeah, we'll out. talk much more about that in the future. And um, yeah, you know whether I I've been the view that this metagame has been solved from the immediate the day after the tournament. It's a Jess guy men <laughs> it's a Jess guy mentor shops world, and everyone else yeah. is living in it. I think that you know the the paradox of outcome decks and the other decks are viable, but they're I think it's kind of self-induced delusion to think those decks are going to reliably beat the other two decks especially just guy mentor with stony silence i just don't see paradox clock come reliably yeah. beating that but we'll talk more about that in the future yeah fair enough any other comments from you steve no it was a great tournament i really enjoyed it i'd like to just thank nick detweiler for running it and and, and um you know it's a tremendous amount of work and nick cost was there and it was great to see him and uh the the artwork for the stuff is awesome the lotus looks amazing by the way the lotus painting is beautiful oh they had the they it's, had the eternal weekend prize. he showed it to me it's on his website now so it's beautiful oh, okay yeah they didn't actually have the prize but he showed me the uh the artwork on his phone so awesome yeah awesome well congratulations on a good performance steve sorry you didn't take first yeah. but still a good showing Thank you. And for for our audience, this is just another example of how great the NYSE is and how great the community organized vintage tournaments around the United States and the world are. So we look forward to covering this event in particular every year for the foreseeable future. And we will be in touch with a new episode very shortly. Probably the next one you'll get from us will be Hour of Devastation in a few weeks. So thank you for listening to episode 67 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Not safe protected game! <laughs> <laughs>